0: that's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino,
3: John Coburn mm-hmm. and Al Warren 106.5 okay.
0: AM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM
3: Riverside, and 105.0 <laughs> AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren with a cold and all, and Mr. John Copenhager. Afer is back. (laughs) Um, Hey, Al. (laughs) You know, I was going to say you're back from the uh, coronation. How was that?
1: It was gilded and stuffy. I don't know. I I feel like there's nothing like watching it. on TV to make you realize how you just—I I don't understand it in an essential kind of way. Um, <laughs> I just don't, and so like, but you know, it's kind of fun to be this outsider. And you're like, oh, this makes—I'm such an American. Like, I really just don't understand this, you know. Um, but people are very passionate about it, and uh, which is which is cool too. I yeah. don't, you know, I. I it's just so interesting I, I just don't get it though um, and I guess uh, you know some of the other royals don't get it either but
3: <laughs> hey listen but you were, I thought you were invited I thought you were supposed to show up you were be you are one of the guys carrying the king's train.
1: Oh no 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 I did not get invited oh. I, I'm, I'm not that special now.
3: You know, I can't figure out. You know, everyone's. Uh, I, I was waiting for Kid Rock to start shooting up the British beer. Or oh, jeez. Because he had a longer <laughs> train than most wedding brides. And he had more makeup than most brides. So I thought for sure they'd be shooting that up or something. i don't, God. Gotta God. be upset about something. Anyway. Now, speaking of makeup and long trains, we've got an author today. <laughs> and uh, let's, let's talk to him. He's got a new book coming out. And it's James D.F. Hannah. How are you doing? I'm
2: doing great. How are y'all doing today?
3: I love that accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I've almost made my nipples hard.
2: Oh, oh, ah,
1: dear.
3: This is interesting. Um, you're right down my alley here with your books, your writing, and stuff like that. I find it very, very curious. You're writing a Malone series here, and you're so it's basically a, a Seamus series. Kind of, it's like a detective. If I'm right.
2: Yeah, it's a uh, it's a PI series set in southern West Virginia. Um, Henry's a former former West Virginia state trooper, uh was uh shot in the line of duty and is a recovering alcoholic, it's just kind of a personal mess. Um, and is basically he the, the books are, are PI novels set in in Appalachia, uh, where I grew up. Because the night is uh, number six.
3: How, how do you decide when you're doing a series like that? How, does it, how do you put that together in your mind? Are you, um, do you kind of know ahead of time how many books and how many things you want your characters to go through or how far you develop them? Is this all kind of pre-planned?
2: No. So when I started writing the books... And 2015 or so, I just it was really just kind of the effort to, to you know finally finish a whole book. And then just as, as time progressed, I, I didn't have a story arc per se. I wasn't like, let's you know lead this to this to this, to this, or anything like that. But somewhere around the, the fourth book, I kind of started seeing, okay, I think I wanted to change some stuff with Henry. Uh, I really like to put him through the ringer. Uh, I like to make him suffer as much as possible. And so with the fifth book, uh, Behind the Wall of Sleep, that was where I figured out he was going to possibly run for sheriff. He lives in uh, Parker County, West Virginia, and so decided, okay, so he's going to run for sheriff. uh, He's being funded, his his campaign being funded by the guy who owns the local strip club, a guy named uh, Bada Bingham. And so... uh, Then book six really became sort of like him dealing with the actual campaign, um, and also kind of bringing together sort of a resolution to those three books, four, five, and six, and setting up whatever I decide to do with the rest of books, with the rest of the series, however long that goes.
3: Well, so why is it you want to make him suffer? Like, who is he? Is he is just like someone? you know in real life.
2: So, uh, I am told by uh, people who claim to be my friend that they read the books, and they're like, wow, you Henry sounds a lot like you, and he's kind of a jerk. And I'm like, gosh, thanks. <laughs> We're wow. not getting a book dedicated to you now. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm very much, I was very much a reader of, uh, of P.I. fiction growing up. And I kind of, I read in that second wave of P.I. novels that uh, came with the ad with with Spencer with uh, Robert B Parker um, and you know the guys like Parker Pranzini Lawrence Block obviously uh, female writers like Marsha Muller Sue Grafton Sarah Paretsky, uh the folks who were really kind of uh, changing that voice and they you know where the PI got to be he got to have a deeper well of emotion he got or or she you know they had complicated. Uh, lives. They weren't only about the case the way that old school privatized uh, were, you know, in the Chandler Hammett mode. But conversely, I never wanted Henry to be the smartest guy in the room. I wanted to try and, and flip that paradigm of where, like, the PI always the toughest guy or the smartest guy. Henry is not the toughest guy. He is not the smartest guy. He is never the smartest guy in the room. What he is, is the guy who doesn't know when to stop. Even when he does try to, there's that part of him that won't let him, won't let himself stop. And so with that comes, you know, him just being pushed further and harder, uh... Into, into increasingly dangerous circumstances and situations. And out of that, I hope there comes uh, growth for him because in the first book, he is very much a jerk because he's struggling with uh, his drinking. He struggles with, you know, he doesn't have the identity of, being, uh, of a, being a state trooper anymore. His wife has left him. He's just, he is, he's very much a wreck. And so by, you know, book six, his life is steadier, and he's trying to define himself in a different way, possibly by becoming sheriff. But it's not going to be that easy for him. Obviously.
3: How do you come up with the dialogue in, in a story like this? Like, we're, I'd imagine you don't live like the main character. You're not in the same world as he is. So, how, how is it you create that dialogue?
2: Um, I shamelessly rip off conversations I have with. Oh, good. <laughs> um, seriously, I, uh, one of my best friends, uh, read Behind the Wall of Sleep, read, read Book 5, and they were like, how many of these conversations did you just take verbatim that we have had? I was like, at least four. But no, <laughs> and, 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 which is not, not even a joke, but as far as dialogue goes, honestly, I, I kind of go with that Aaron Sorkin rule, uh, I like to hear smart people say smart things, or, um, Things which are funny, at least. I'm really about rhythm in dialogue. Uh, I like the the rat-a-tat, um, very much of that Elmore Leonard school. You know, where you just you you'll drop in and you'll just you'll read a Leonard novel just for the dialogue sometimes, and that's a thing I really strive for, is because I want that very specific rhythm between characters.
3: How do you experience that? Are you actually hearing your characters and their dialogue in your head or or not? Like are you that type of writer?
2: I am completely. I always say that it's basically all just transcribing the voices in my head. And it is, it is very much I I know I don't always know what the characters are gonna say. I mean like literally there are points where I'm surprised by the stuff that comes out of, you know, their mouths, I guess is the right word. I'm, I'm surprised sometimes by what shows up on the page, uh, which is always great. I mean, anytime you're you're surprising yourself, and you're I mean you're the creator of this particular world, and you're surprising yourself. Hopefully, that then is entertaining for the reader.
3: You don't get into trouble when you're driving and you hear all these voices, like you're not.
2: No, I'm I'm, I'm not standing Sammy out or anything. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: I just wanted to see if they let you drive or not.
2: It is, and so I, uh, my phone, uh, my notes app is just littered with uh, chunks of dialogue, with descriptions, with uh, little narrative ideas and threads that uh, just pop up, like when I'm out for a run, um, or just driving, you know, like you said, like driving somewhere. Um, these ideas, you know, it just comes out of nowhere and shows up. And then it's you know, basically, you know, because I'm a safe driver, I have to pull up to the side of the road and write stuff down on my phone. Uh, because I don't want to lose that. It's
1: amazing. You know, I'm always in awe of writers that can do that. And it's like such a good habit to get in the you know, write keeping whatever how you do it, whether you do it on your phone or carry a little notebook around with you, I think it's like such a good idea. I'm, I am terrible at that. I'm just like I, like, I just pretend I can remember things until I can sit down at my desk and jot them down. It's a, it's a terrible plan, so I'm always at all that. Um, I have, so I have a question. I uh, actually grew up in southwestern Virginia. Okay. And so if I so I love the, of course, I'm just fascinated by, you know, writing um, crime fiction in rural spaces and, you um, you know, you said you grew up in South uh, and Southwestern West Virginia, though, right? Yeah, yeah,
2: Southern West Virginia slash Kentucky.
1: Yeah, so that we're not probably as a as we probably didn't grow up that far apart. But I how how he talk a little bit about how that sort of influenced um, your writing, and maybe also like your you know writing of crime books as well.
2: Uh, so that was really interesting because I'm I'm you know like I'm. Three generate. I mean, you know, like my, the, the past three generations of my family were all like coal miners, railroad workers, tobacco farmers. I always have had a rural sensibility. I mean, I grew up, I grew up in a holler in Eastern Kentucky called Turkey Creek and it is a holler. It is not a hollow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I always define a holler as that space between two mountains that God forgets about, but. So, growing up, though, like I said, you know, I, I read a lot of crime fiction. I read Block, I read Ed McBain, Parker, Rex Stout. I read all of these very urban crime writers. All of these, you know, all everything set in big cities, set in L.A., set in Boston, set in Philadelphia. And so, when I tried to write, I, I didn't have a correlatory experience for any of that. You know, I'd never... You know, I I, I I never saw an escalator until my teen years. You know, I I grew up in really small, super small town. I grew up in one of those Eastern Kentucky towns where if the football team is traveling on Friday night, there's no one in town. You know, last one last one out, turn off the lights. But I didn't at that time. I didn't see any novels that were, that felt that way. That that were that felt like you know they reflected that. Everything felt You know, you read Donald Westlake, or you know, in his Richard Stark novels, and occasionally, you know, Parker would be in a small town somewhere in a heist, but otherwise, that was it. When I sat down, and I and so I spent years though trying to write a big city novel, and I couldn't do it because I never lived in a big city. And then when when I finally started a version of, of what eventually became Midnight Lullaby, which was the first Henry Malone novel. I realized, you know what, I'm just going to write this book in a low, in Malo low, low, um, that I understand. I'm going to write it in a, you know, set it in a small town. I'm going to set it in one of these, you know, two stoplight towns in West Virginia that I understand. And, you know, that just, everything grew from that. Everything grew from the acceptance that I could write something about the small town. I could write about those people, which I understood more than trying to write about banking or stockbrokers or anything anything that felt anything that felt metropolitan. But I could write about, you know, those you know, the the lonely stretches, you know, between towns, you know, where you're driving through the hills and the roads are barely wider than the the width of your car. And, you know, towns where basically everything shuts up, you know, shuts off at, you know, 7 o'clock at night. And I got that. I understood that. And so I managed to do that for six, you know, six of these, you know, six Malone books and then a standalone that takes place in uh, Parker County. I haven't lived in West Virginia in a few years now. That's still what I'm familiar with. That, that's that is the environment I'm most familiar with, and so I'm still most comfortable writing. About. is
3: there's if there is there something you want people to get out of this book, uh, and even the series, like, or when you do a book in a series and um,
2: you finish it, is is there some sort of subtext or meaning to the book? I always say that I don't have my my aspirations are strictly storytelling. I want to tell. I want the story to be entertaining. I want the the characters to feel true. I want them to be entertaining and realistic. Um, Even if they are exaggerated, I want them to feel real. I want people to not... I want people to not judge Appalachia, I think, the way that it has been judged in a lot of ways. Um, You know, uh, we don't need a reckoning so much as an adjustment, probably. And I would like for people to understand. There's a lot more to to that area to, to to what I term cultural Appalachia than they know or understand. I hope they get that. I hope they But more than anything, I just want them. I want the book to be entertaining.
3: What is a good book to you? What keeps you reading?
2: Um. So I am very much. A, you know, I'm very much into a lot of southern writing right now A lot of the, the, the new southern war, I guess um, You have someone like uh, S.A. Cosby Who you know has kind of proven to people that you can write about rural uh, rural America And really just write a hard-edged crime novel that way um, Guys like Eli Craner Bobby Matthews, Mark Westmoreland These guys who are writing uh, Kelly J. Ford uh, Amina, Akhtar, Laura McHugh, I'm really drawn to the writers who are telling these, these southern, these rural stories and, um, are telling them in a way that is respectful, uh, that is different, that emphasizes a diversity that doesn't just lean on the same, you know, white guy tropes that have been, you know, kind of bandied about within the genre for years. And they're all telling interesting stories within those areas that are very much about character. You know, first and foremost, they're writing about these really deep, interesting characters um, who are relatable. Regardless of, I think, if you're, you know, from a city or from the country, you can read them and be drawn in. So I'm always about character and voice in, in whoever I'm reading. I want, I want someone, I want to read the strongest, most distinct voice with the strongest character.
1: You mentioned that um, there are things that folks are getting wrong about Appalachia. And I, I think this is really interesting because there's lots of things to talk about. I'm, I'm fascinated about this conversation, you know, because I grew up there. And I, I strongly agree. I think that the world does get Appalachia wrong. Um, I'm curious in what ways you think that's true. And I'm also curious generally about um, just rural fiction. Uh, like, you know, because I think there's like this specific things you get wrong about Appalachia, but there's also kind of things about general sort of assumptions about rural life that I think we get wrong. Anyway, um uh, what do you think? What what is what is what are we getting wrong about Appalachia sometimes um, from the outside?
2: I think there's a lot of presumption with Appalachia that you know, like I'm I'm right now I'm reading a book called What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia, weirdly enough. Yeah, by, <laughs> uh, <laughs> by uh Kate, and you know it's very much a response to Hillbilly Elegy, to JD Vance's book. Uh, And I think J.D. Vance gets, you know, J.D. Vance is a great example of someone who gets everything wrong about Appalachia. Because, one, I think there's this very whitewashed concept of what Appalachia is, I then it it, it ignores uh, that there's uh, a lot more diversity to the area. I think there's this, you know, Scotch-Irish mythology I think people really have to the area. Uh, That's what I said when I say cultural Appalachia, um, you know, it's really that, that stretch of, from Virginia into Kentucky that goes down through, uh, you know, like Georgia and places like that, Where, as opposed to, like, geographic Appalachia, which is, you know, 2,000 miles or something like that. I think, you know, there's this, this idea that, you know, that it's, it's the, the tropes which have existed about Appalachia for, for decades and decades and decades now, um, dating back to, you know, the Hatfield McCoys, the Hatfields and mccoys That, you know, everyone's basically... You know, that, that people are still holding a grudge about that, even, is, is a thing that, that amuses the hell out of me. Um, people think we're still fighting that. We're not. <laughs> you know, people think, you know, there's there's a, a, a paradigm that people are not interested in in bettering themselves. That they're, you know, that they're lazy. And, and the truth is, is, Appalachia is really just an area that... Um, has been maligned for so long and been created into the butt of jokes for so long that that is as much the reason of why they don't trust, of why Appalachians don't trust people, why they, you know, the you know the scorn of the outsider is one of the the, the great Appalachian uh, tropes, which is not necessarily wrong. Um, But it's also a self-defense mechanism, because more than anything, what I think Appalachians want is a chance, you know, and, you know, we're not just, you know, all marrying cousins and drinking moonshine. There's a lot of, of great stuff that comes out of that area. And it just needs an opportunity to shine a little bit.
3: Yeah, Deliverance was a good movie. <laughs>
2: Deliverance Georgia. I hope like to point this out. <laughs> it's true. It's true. You
3: sure got a pretty mouth. <laughs> oh. oh anyway. Yeah.
1: <laughs> talk about talk about a movie that did do that though. Like it's, it, that certainly and a book, of course, did a lot to sort of create a lot of the negative stereotypes that so haunt that area. Okay. And, I mean, not intentionally, I think.
3: How do you counter that when it's been done? Even the tropes that, that gay people get and even the tropes, all of the stuff. So it has been done for so many years. So how is it that you can wake people up, so to speak?
2: That's where I think you really do have, you know, you you have folks like, like Ford, you have um, these writers who are telling new stories, and they're telling different stories, and they're telling them from the viewpoints that people are not expecting. You know, Sean has always told, you know, Sean's told me the story before that, you know, no one, people didn't want him to write his first, you know, people didn't want him writing about black experience in Virginia, um, in rural Virginia. No, they they wanted like a big city crime novel. He was like, that's not who I am. He's, He's telling his story. He's telling a story that I think is is very overlooked is very often overlooked. I think then you know when you have also then conversely you have someone like White like Kelly who I think is is wonderful and I think Copperheads is one of the best you know uh, Southern war novels in the last probably ten years. Um, and she's talking about being a lesbian in the South and is very you know very. You know, with this really strong individualistic voice, I think it just, it, 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 becomes the accumulation of those voices. And I say this as a straight cisgendered white guy who acknowledges, you know, this is the story I'm telling. But what I really want is I do want this other diversity of stories because for me, more diversity means better stories. Plurali- you know, a, gr- a greater diversity of voices is, is vital for Good story, and not just good storytelling, but also for overall truth. You know, so that we are creating those new black bear term tropes. Where you know we can, uh, you know, it's not going to happen overnight, obviously, because where we got now didn't happen overnight. But it is that slow, you know, Sherman's march, you know, through Atlanta, essentially of. Destroy of, of working to get rid of those old, old voices and 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 replace them and show something that feels more honest and reflective of now.
3: I can't help but think that um, each time you write a book like this in this series, that it means a lot to you, even though. You presented as it, entertainment, and there's the, the underlying theme. But how do you think that each each book in this
2: series, as you complete it, changes
3: you you as a writer? So every, I mean,
2: I think every book is it's very much some distinct uh, experience. Um, so I wrote behind the wall of sleep very quickly. Uh, the the fifth book, the one that won the Seamus. I think I wrote it in like three months. When it came down to the time that I was trying to write Because the Night, that took nine months. And that is nine months after uh, two years and probably trashing about a quarter million words to be able to finally get to this book. And so this book really changed me in a way that it made me more determined. It really made me want to keep pushing as a a storyteller. Someone who's very, I, I consider myself very fortunate and privileged to get to do this. And this book, because it was so hard, because it was such a struggle, really just made me appreciate the ability to get to tell a story, to get to tell these stories. And to also kind of want to look at, you know, what are some of the other stories I want to tell? What are some of the other... What are some of the other journeys I think maybe I can put on a page? You know, probably, you know, and explore with some different characters and see where that
3: goes. So I can't help but also think that the setting must be very important, being as you're talking about um, the location and and how people are much more than what the, the country or even the world sees them
2: as. How important is the setting to you? Are you writing it as if it's a character itself? Very much so. I... Uh... You know, like I said, I'm, I, haven't, I haven't lived in West Virginia for a while, um, but I'm constantly, so I still have a lot of friends who keep me up to date with everything, and I'm, I am the person who is on Google Maps all the time because I want everything to feel realistic. I want the, the terrain to, to feel true. I want, you know, if, if someone from back home is reading this book, and they're like, that's not that's not how that would would be. I'm going to hear about it. So I want the the, the the geography to feel true. I want it to feel culturally true. I right? you know, so you know, you do a lot of research about say like you know the the Italian population in Clarksburg, West Virginia, which was huge, and that you know, feeds into to everything else. I'm never a big fan of... of, of you know, I, this is my... You know, when people say that, oh, that the the, the the area becomes a character, the city becomes a character, but honestly, that's very true. You know, um, your storytelling is already... Is, is typically always reflected by where you're setting the story, by where you're setting the stage. And so getting all of that right, though, is is really important to me. Because like you said hundreds, you know, at least a 100 years of other people coming in and telling the Appalachian story, and now the opportunity to kind of get to tell an Appalachian story myself, that that's important, to get it right.
1: Well, you know, sort of, maybe this is sort of part two of the same question, but, um, you know, I do think... And I wonder if you would agree that it's, its setting is in part like its impact on character. So my question is, how do you go about building characters? What do you do um, to create a compelling character?
2: So I am a deeply instinctual writer. Honestly, as I'm starting to write, I have idea. You know, basically, I'm working off of fragments of ideas. I kind of know. I have ideas about who the character is. Like with Henry, I didn't know a whole lot about him when I started writing about him. And so as I've, as I've written the books, it really is just, it's it's discovery. And it, it's like I said earlier, sometimes I'm surprised by the things that my characters say. Very often I am surprised by, you know, where they end up traveling. The, Henry's girlfriend shows up in the second book, and I had no intention of her becoming his girlfriend until someone read the second book and they were like, so are they together in the third book? And I was like, well, I guess they are now. <laughs> because everything, I, again, it, it just goes back to, to to a discovery process. That is, I'm, I'm not someone who uh, does the, the really intricate outline or anything like that. Um, I don't do character sketches. I am just going to the page and writing and writing and writing, and then eventually it starts to flow and it fits and it feels right, and the characters come into play, and I understand them more as it progressed.
1: Since it's detective fiction, though, you must, is it difficult to sort of work out a plot? Um, Because, I mean, I guess you're sort of more of a quote-unquote pantser as you sort of more exploratory writer. Do you ever have to rewrite a lot, or do you ever find yourself having to outline and do that kind of thing? It's, I'm always fighting the two, like the instinctual writing with the more uh, structured writing. So I'm curious what your process
2: is. Yeah, no, my process is a nightmare, John. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a complete utter nightmare. Uh, oh, um, Yeah, no, because I, I have. I have, I have pants my way through each one of these books, each one of the Malone books. And it, I, I rewrite extensively. I rewrite everything to within an inch. Um, I have every, all my you know any short story I've written, any novel I've written, everything is rewritten. That that whole concept of like the three drafts and you're done. I don't understand that because like <laughs> I, I, I I will go through five, six, seven drafts. Um, and, and again, you know, it's rewriting for plot a lot of times. It, it is, oh, I didn't know this person was the killer until now, but, uh, or, you know, I didn't know this was how this was going to, to turn out. Um, so I'm, again, I'm always surprised, but, um, no, I, I rewrite, I rewrite so much. I rewrite just insane in amounts and cut whole sloths. So I'll tell you this. Um, this is how much of a rewriter I am. Uh, I wrote an original draft of this book that was about 92,000 words. And then as I was rewriting it, I realized it was not good like, at all. And so I shaved off, I took the first eight or 10,000 words of it and wrote a completely different book. head, head. Absolutely no bearing whatsoever to the origin, to, to what I wrote originally, um, and most people would be like, "That is insane," and they would be correct <laughs> because it is just it is a chaotic process to kind of go through. Now I have a book that I just finished that is a, a first I mean first draft. I'm getting ready to go back into revisions on it, and I did outline that. And now I'm realizing probably as I go into writing a second draft, a lot of it is going to be like shaving out, like it, it's, oh, there's too much plot, you know, and, you know, it's like shaving out some of the plot, putting in some more character beats, kind of expanding some relationships. Um, it is every, you know, every book is a little different. Every book is a little different, I guess. I've, I I have not figured out, though, the the really, like, okay, I have a plot, and I'm plotted out, and I'm going to write it, and then just be, you know, then you, you go back the second draft, and you're just fine-tuning things. I, I don't know how that works. God love the folks who do. <laughs>
3: <laughs> how do you know when it's done? It's over. It's finished. Is there something that happens? One of those voices calls you and said,
2: hey, you're done. I always say I know I'm done when I'm sick and tired of it. When... When I, when I realize that any more editing, any more writing, any more whatever is just diminishing returns, um, there's nothing else I can do to it that is going to necessarily make it better. It, it is just, at this point, it's the creature that it is. Um, and that's when I'm just sort of like, okay, I'm going to send this to an editor and let them deal with it now. So, so your editors love you. Oh yeah, no, deeply, <laughs> deeply. Deep, deep, deep. um, no, this was actually so. Um, this was this was an interesting experience for me because so I self published the first the the Mullen Books original, and um, I was self published when uh, Behind the Wall of Sleep won the Seamus, and then Down and Out Books when they uh, they picked the book you know the books back up and republished them. And so this was like my first real sort of, you know, working with my publisher experience. And, um, whereas I kind of was, you know, elbow deep in everything, uh, doing everything myself, this was the first time that, you know, I'm you know coordinating everything with a publisher and working with, with that, uh, working with the editors and things like that. It's been, it's been a really interesting experience. It's been a, it's been a good experience. Um, and I'm I'm happy to uh, be having to, to have the book uh, ready to come out.
3: Well, give us the names of the people that you don't like in the company. <laughs> 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 we have someone on the line,
2: <laughs> right? <laughs>
3: <laughs> and they have something to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so do you like working with a publisher better than self-published, or
2: what's your? feeling on both. Uh, so I do like it. it uh, I mean, it is it, it's it is a very different it, it's a different experience because when you self-publish again, you know, you're doing everything. So, when I self-published, I, I did have a proof you know, I did hire a proofreader, but I was like formatting books myself. I was uh, I I have a graphic design background, so I was designing covers um and you know, any promotion, anything was all on me. Um, it is nice to work with a publisher and have the book done, and then just I give it to the give it to them, and they work with it. They send me back some proofs. So I do that, go back. You know, we figure out the cover. Um, self-publishing is great if you really have control issues um, because you control it. Working with a publisher, you know, and, and, and down and out, they're they're a, a fairly uh, nimble uh, group. Uh, they, you know, we can, with self-publishing, you might finish a book on, on a Monday and then you put that book out the next Monday. There's actually, uh, you know, there was actually like six or eight months between, I you know, I sent them the book and, and now it's coming out. Um, so, you know, kind of. Working with that, not having all of that control and, and, uh, sense of autonomy has been different. But it's also been nice to, like I said, to give them the book. And then I can go and start, just start working on something else. I'm not just sitting and sweating about the book and, and what's happening to
3: it. you ever go back to your
2: earlier stuff and want to rewrite it? So much. So much so, um, and in fact, actually, so when down and out picked the books up, I did I did a gentle rewrite uh, over a couple of them. I would really love someday to probably uh, rework some stuff because I mean, you know, I just it was those were the the learning books, so to speak. You know, you're 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 figuring out how how to how to you know you're you're uh, building the car while you're driving. Someone told me. Um, and I think that's, that's fairly true. You're, you're learning the whole, the whole process as you're doing it. It's, it's, it's kind of like your own MFA program, so to speak. And though ultimately your, your professors are, uh, the reviews on Goodreads. <laughs> Scary thought. Oh, Terracon. <laughs> so
3: so the bad characters, the evil people, the ones that do something wrong in the book. Um, do you Are you able to capture that person or people easily from all of your bad history yourself? Or where, where does it come from?
2: Um, so I think a lot of that is just sort of it's unmitigated id. Um, it's, it's taking all of those dark impulses that you have, you know. And, and, but also, you know, there's you know, certain levels of truism, you know, you you have to you have to be able to write. I think any anytime you have an antagonist, I think you have, someone told me once that your antagonist is the protagonist in his in his or her own mind of their own story. They're 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 the good guy, and so really with any any of the bad guys, I really try and approach it that way. You know, they think they're they're doing whatever they're doing. They're doing it for the right reasons in their mind. Um, which then makes whatever terrible thing they're doing uh, in their minds justifiable and probably, therefore, worse than if they were just, like, curling a mustache and tying someone to, you know, train tracks.
3: Dating yourself there.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Snidely <laughs> <laughs> or with. <whatever. laughs> well... Um, so listen, so how do people find you? Where do you hang out? You're on street bars, corners, like what? Um, do you have a website, social media, hookup
2: apps? I have a table at a bar. I have a table at a, yeah. a, a bar here in Louisville. Um, so you can find me. Uh, I am on uh, Twitter way more than I should, at least until uh, Musk burns <laughs> the joint down. Uh, you can find me there uh, at James D.F. Hannah. And uh also uh at my I'm um, on you can find me Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at James DF Hannah, and you can find me at my webs on my website, uh www.jamesdfhanna.com, because I wanted to keep it simple. Um and there's a link to uh on my website, there's a link to my sub stack where I occasionally uh, will write about whatever crosses my mind. It's, it's called That Noise at 2 a.m.
3: Yeah, someone told me you had a big substack. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So what is, the D, what is the DF stand? Uh, Donald Francis. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> but that's all, you know, it's all, it's all good. So so what's next? So what's happening now? You've got this out and, and your mind must be
2: wandering into some other new ventures. Um, so I've got I've got uh, this one out, I've got this uh, behind the, uh, sorry, Calls the Night, uh, it's out. Uh, June 19th, I have a uh, novella out in a series that Frank Zafiro edits, Uh, a Grifter's song, that's out uh, now. Uh, My installment's called uh, Somewhere Outside Salvation, and it takes place uh, back in West Virginia. And it's about two con artists on the run who uh, find themselves uh, pulling a con involving a traveling carnival. There's uh, some Mothman mythos involved in that. Uh, I I wrote that for Frank and had a lot of fun with that. That was me playing with some carnival noir. Um, And so right now, like, you know, I'm I'm working on edits on a a new book that's... uh, Takes place in 1976, small town in, in Kentucky. Uh, two brothers, moonshine, uh, bikers, kind of seeing where it goes with that. Like I said, I've got the, the first draft done, and, and we're working on we're working on. Wow, uh, are you
3: doing any book shows or uh, script jobs or anything like that?
2: <laughs> uh, you know, we'll probably uh, be at some some festivals this year. I'll be at Sleuth Fest down in Boca. Uh, in July, and I'll be at BoucherCon in, is that the end of August? Yeah, end of August. Making the
3: rounds. So, well, now it's time to go. We appreciate you being here. We'll have all of your information up on our website as well. And we're talking about Because the Night. It's a Henry Malone novel, and the writer of that was our guest, Mr. James Dia. Hanna. thank you for being
2: here. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, James.
0: You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, the hosts or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is the something weird here. I'll be back. <laughs>